Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Good afternoon, it's Helene Becker, Cowan's Senior Airline and Aircraft Leasing Analyst. And this afternoon, we're talking with Lauren Riley, United Airlines Chief Sustainability Officer. But one of the areas that impresses about United is their commitment to sustainability. Thank you very much for being here today to talk about environmental and sustainability issues. The industry is very focused on that. We know that, um, and I think it's kind of interesting because Airlines have obviously committed, maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but they have committed to being carbon neutral by 2050. And United has really taken the lead in this area with investments in sustainable aviation fuel, carbon recapture, um, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and others. So let's talk about this and why it's important to United. First, Lauren, talk about why investors and why customers should care about this and and, and really why, why should our customers care about this? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Helene. I think, I think it's just so remarkable to me that this dialogue between a sustainability leader and you know an investor leader it's happening now and this didn't even happen yet you know 2 years ago so it's really fun for me to just um, see how the the discussion um, around commitments to doing the right thing by by way of the climate and and our contribution to climate change has really um, expanded quite significantly to all of these new st- stakeholder groups in, including the investor community and the financial markets and such. So I celebrate that. I think it's so it's so awesome. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I'm happy to talk about this. And you know, it's a critical issue that a variety of folks are are new to the table in earnest trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And you know, so United, we've been on this journey for gosh, I don't know, well over a decade now trying to figure out those solutions that allow us to truly remove the emissions from flying. And, you know, we made a pledge about a year and a half ago now to 100% green. The reason we call our net zero pledge, so 100% green is effectively our declaration of going net zero by 2050. But what's unique about it, Helene, is that we are the only airline in the world that has declared that our path to decarbonization will not include traditional carbon offsets. And that's what makes us unique and distinct from all the other airlines. You know, what's important about that, and and truly it it takes a moment to really understand the principled approach we took to making this goal our goal, is that we, we recognize as a hard to abate industry that we have a heck of a lot of work to do to find those solutions and then scale them to the level that can actually allow us to decarbonize aviation and to get distracted by looking at other nearer term, easier solutions such as carbon offsets to us was a bit disingenuous because we, we frankly just need to roll up our sleeves, figure out what the problem, how to solve the problem permanently and invest in those solutions. So this is really our commitment to staying laser focused on identifying those alternatives to how we fly today that permanently, permanently reduce the emissions from flying. Um, And and that's really where we are. 
our investor community has gotten quite loud in the last year and a half, two years about wanting to understand what are the climate impacts to your business? How is that going to affect your operations? What does that look like on your balance sheet? Those conversations didn't happen before. Our customers have been really amazing advocates for change. And, you know, I'll just tell a real quick story here because this, this just still blows my mind today. When the pandemic hit and we essentially just stopped flying overnight, it was pretty bizarre. But, um, you know, we had to get a little bit scrappy during that time about how we continued in our ambition to address climate change. We didn't have the money. In fact, we owe a bunch of money back to the government uh, to really invest in some of these solutions that are quite costly right now. And I give complete credit to our corporate customers because they're the ones that raised their hand and said, we cannot afford to stop. We have to look at finding those solutions and investing in them. And they partnered with United and we stood up a brand new program last year where um, in, in collaboration with our corporate customers, they helped us fund investment in sustainable aviation fuels, which is a solution I'm sure we'll talk about quite a bit. Um, but without them, I'm not sure you know, how far we could have gotten on our own given our financial circumstance. So uh, there is a ton of passion and desire to, to truly do the right thing and in partnership across the whole value chain from our investor community all the way through to our customers. And, and it's really been quite a journey. Were you surprised, Lauren, that when the government agreed to give the industry um, financial aid, and I don't want to call it a bailout because that's really un disingenuous that it was really a full employment program for the airline industry, sort of administered by the airlines, but funded by the government. Were you, were you surprised that they didn't include some green aspect to it? Because as you may know, in Europe, some of the governments required that their airlines either replace aging aircraft, which they were intending to do anyway, or make other commitments to carbon, either neutrality or reduction. So were you surprised the government here didn't do the same thing? Well, what I can say is that I don't, I don't know, and this is just my point of view, that the, the pandemic and um, recovering travel and keeping our folks employed and communities on their feet was necessarily the right time and place to, to tackle everything. <laughs> um, I do think, you know, we have seen continued and increased ambition across all of aviation despite the pandemic, which suggests that, you know, perhaps, perhaps it wasn't even a necessary um, suggestion or inclusion. Um, I, I'm really pleased with how far aviation has continued to commit and we're continuing to collaborate with one another to progress our climate change agendas because we do recognize that we're, we are an emitter, we are hard to abate, which means we don't necessarily have the solution commercially available, certainly not at scale, for us to shift over, unlike, for example, ground vehicles with the conversion to electric vehicles. So uh, we're, we're a little bit behind the curve, um, but, but we're working really hard uh, with fuel suppliers, with technology innovators, with the government, with our, our friends on Wall Street and, and elsewhere to try to figure this out and do it as quickly as we possibly can. So, so just some things to think about on fuel. United uses, what, about four or five billion gallons of jet fuel annually. I think pre-pandemic it was closer to six, and now it's probably closer to five. But when you think about your commitments to buying SAF, 
Um, I think I calculated you, you'll use something like 35 or 40 billion gallons of jet fuel this decade, but your commitment to buying SAF is something on the order of 100 million, if even that much. And it's a, it's a fraction. And, and I guess to your point, it, it, it's not scalable yet. So, so how do we get there? How do we get from kind of where we are, where SAF is, what, $10 a gallon or something, to being more competitive with jet fuel? Although, I guess, in the spot market, jet fuel with crack spreads included as something like $6 a gallon right now. So maybe we're well on our way right? to being a, little more, being a little more competitive. But, but how, how do we scale it? How, how do... How do you get companies like Jivo and Nesty to scale? Well, and that that is the million dollar question. <laughs> and it's such a fantastic one. So so let's let's level set here. So SAF in the US is about two to four times the cost of conventional jet. So absolutely there's a green premium. SAF in um, European markets where there are mandates coming online, it's a bit more expensive. So they're seeing that some of the, the pricing of the limited supply of SAF is, is going up because of uh, the requirement to actually purchase a certain percentage of supply. Uh, you know, United, as I mentioned, we have been investing in sustainable aviation fuel and um, testing it for more than a decade. We flew the first commercial flight in the United States back in 2009. Um, in 2015, we made the largest investment in a sustainable aviation fuel producer, Fulcrum Bioenergy. $30 million to produce jet fuel out of municipal solid waste. We have the largest offtake agreement of um, any airline in the world. Uh, last year, we announced an offtake fuel purchase of 1.5 billion gallons from Alder Fuels, which is a new startup we um, invested in with Honeywell UOP. And together, as of the end of last year, United had about twice the amount of publicly announced commitments for sustainable aviation fuel purchases of any other airline in the world. But yet, to your point, which is very, very appropriate, it was well less than 1% of our total fuel supply that we were able to consume in 2019 and all the way to present time. So there simply is not enough supply. It is truly a challenge of scale, scale, scale. And then the other dimension is speed. <laughs> you know, We have to do this fast. We really have to get this online quickly. So far, the fuel production that we have seen come online has largely been, um, you know, these real gritty mom and pop startups that are really um, passionate innovators. And we give them a tremendous amount of credit for all the hard work that they've put into demonstrating these solutions are viable. What we need now is really the scale up infrastructure. We need access to the pipes to pipe it into the airports. We need access to the big um, production facilities and, and the um the, the fueling infrastructure. Uh, and all of that fundamentally sits on a disconnect where we just don't have today the right policy incentives that are triggering the production of sustainable aviation fuel over other fuels. And what's not necessarily well understood, and, and it should be appreciated very much, is that today to create sustainable aviation fuel, you essentially take the same pathway by and large as you do to create renewable diesel fuel for, for ground transport. But as a fuel producer, you can make more money when you sell into the renewable diesel market. There are more tax credits, there's a bigger market, there's more folks buying, SAF is a bit niche. And so I appreciate that, which is why United has been 
the lead airline really trying to advocate for tax credits that at least level the playing field with renewable diesel. And then, you know, future state, we're going to need some kind of tax policy that enables fast um, investment in the production side. So how do we get more production online faster? So um, we're hopeful. It seems to be an area where policymakers, at least here in the U.S., they see and understand the value in, of investing in um, some of these, these tax credits to support sustainable aviation fuels. Um, so I'm optimistic, but we haven't quite gotten across that finish line yet. So until then, I'm, I'm just going to hold my breath. I think you guys are also a leader in using electric vehicles. I mean, I, I feel like your California operation is pretty pretty forward relative to others and rel even relative to the rest of the network. Well, indeed, I think all operations in California are, are quite progressive. There are a lot of um, very forward-leaning climate laws in the state of California, and I give them a ton of credit for coming up with new um, policy frameworks that really help incentivize the marketplace for sort of lower carbon alternatives like uh, low carbon fuel standard for fuels. Um, our fleet for our ground service equipment overall is about, I think it's about 32% electric, and that's inclusive of every vehicle that we have on the ground. Some of these um, GSC equipment pieces don't have electric alternatives right now because they're just so unique and distinct and there's few of those sold. So we're really working hard to increase that number. Um, we're working hard with our airport authority partners to make sure that the electrical infrastructure required at the airports is there as we begin to bring additional electric vehicles online so that we can charge them up and get them into operation immediately. And this, this speaks to a slightly different issue, but the lack of some of your regional providers have a lack of pilots. So it kind of causes a reduction in flying from smaller airports and makes people have to drive to bigger airports. Is, is a solution more seats per departure and, and fewer departures per day? Or does that affect the service pattern the airline would want to offer its its uh, its customers. What I do know is that we are absolutely committed to servicing our customers where they want to fly. Um, I'm going to leave it to our network operations and airport operations teams to figure out how to make that happen most effectively. Um, but but I suspect that there's you know a, a good number of incredibly smart people that are trying to figure that out right now and and perhaps more seat more seats and upgaging in some of those approaches, uh, you know, that should be in scope. Fair enough. You know, the other thing is single-use plastics. So you guys had made a lot of strides in this area. I fly and I fly a lot internationally. Pre-pandemic, um, I flew even more. I was going back and forth to London at least eight times a year and um, and always united because of where I live and where I work, it's just the most convenient airline for me. Um, but, but now it's kind of mixed. Um, my Polaris kit bag last week um, was the blue bag and it wasn't in plastic, but things inside were in plastic. And then, so that's kind of business class. On the way over to London, I, I got a bottle of plastic water, a plastic bottle of water. <laughs> and coming back from Dublin, I did not. But anytime I asked for water, they 
they ran it over. And I don't know, domestically, I was going back and forth to Florida for a while and then I stopped, but I would get a little baggie of food, <laughs> of snacks. So what's, what's with plastics? What's going on there? It's part of your sustainability thing. <laughs> well, you know, no pun intended, but it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's kind of all over the place. And, and frankly, for good reason. I mean, if you come down at the end of the day and say, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions or um, prioritize public health amidst a pandemic, we're going to prioritize pu public health. Um, and I think we were, you know, we have been completely thrown a left curve that I hope we never, ever ever experience again, knock on wood, but, uh, you know, it, it really caused us to temporarily make sure that we are um, looking at means that promote hygiene, promote um, confidence of flyers, and, and then really um, enable us to um, service well. I mean, the, the, the little snack baggies, I think, are adorable, but a little excessive right now. And the intent originally is that they allowed fast service to everyone in their seats. Um, so you minimize sort of contact. And that was critically important when we didn't know much about the pandemic and the virus itself. Now we're in a very different place. And so it is time and we are looking at um, what is our onboard experience from start to finish, both service and product. We are looking at what's the, um, what do our cabins look and feel like as part of our United Next strategy. We're looking to retrofit some aircraft to enable, for example, um, everyone who goes on board to have their carry-on put above them in uh, and, and de-stress that experience. So I think, you know, from sustainability all the way through to every other dimension of the customer experience, we are looking now again at, at all of it. Um, and, and it's time to do it now, whereas, you know, this time 12 to 18 months ago, it might not have been appropriate because there was just such trepidation in travel in general. Got it. What about repurposing seat coverings, old seats and, and employee uniforms? Do you guys do that too? We have. Um, and, you know, that's so fun. In, in the beginning of the pandemic, we actually took, um, uh, gosh, what, it was uniforms. It was below the wing uniforms that had never been worn. And we repurposed them into face masks because you couldn't get face masks early on. Now, we quickly realized that that material maybe was not super conducive to breathing well. But, <laughs> but you know, uh, there was a, a demand for a solution and we had product and, and uh, yes, we needed to reuse that. Um, we have recycled our, our seat cushions. We've recycled uniforms. We've repurposed them into um, creating bags and computer covers and, you know, you name it um, in the upcycling world. Um we're going to continue to go through uh, changes of uniform and, and, as I mentioned, the interior of the cabins, um, and we'll be continuing to look at those options as we move forward. Uh, we're real proud of our partnerships that we, we have with some of the nonprofits that are capable of helping us divert waste to landfill. I mean, that's really important. A lot of these materials end up as insulation in buildings and, and houses. Uh, and it's fantastic materials for insulation. And so if there's a, a better home than the landfill, we're absolutely committed to that. The one other plug I will make though, is that some of these materials are actually really great uh, feedstock for jet fuel. So one of the um, investments we made, as I mentioned in Fulcrum Bioenergy, they actually take trash out of your trash can 
and they convert it into uh, a low carbon um, sustainable aviation fuel. And so having access to those plastics and to, to some of that cushion material that's in the seat actually um, creates a much better end product for sustainable aviation fuel. That's exciting. That's, that's really exciting because to the extent you can avoid the landfill that are getting filled up anyway, that would be huge from a sustainability, exactly. from an SAF perspective, right? Absolutely. So a little shifting gears, Scott talked about carbon recapture versus carbon offsets. And I think he was the one, and I've, I've stolen this line from him because I think he was the one who said, there isn't enough land to plant the trees that would be necessary to offset the carbon emissions, right? And and I know I've stolen that before, um, but he is more eloquent than I am. <laughs> so, so talk about carbon recapture. How does the technology work and why should we care about it? Yeah, well, so here's the thing. Carbon offsets essentially are a transaction that happens when a company like United funds planting of trees. And the trees, um, as they grow, they capture CO2 out of the atmosphere and they store it within the construct of the tree. United, subsequently, because we paid for that tree to be planted, we get to claim the reduction from that tree. Now, there's a net benefit to, to society. I mean, the, the carbon offsets work. They, they do work. Um, but it does feel a little inauthentic to us to claim victory in an industry like ours that has so much work to do to find permanent solutions to reducing our emissions to, to say that by planting that tree, we, we've checked the box uh, uh, in our climate stewardship. That's not okay to us. For us, um, we really need, we need order of magnitudes bigger than that. We need um, solutions that actually do permanently sequester because, you know, with trees, the minute you drop them down, that CO2 is back into the atmosphere. Um, so, so carbon capture and carbon removal are actually um, a, a group of technologies that are really quite interesting. There are some that capture carbon dioxide off of the um, industrial stack at a factory, so it's highly concentrated. There are others like um, the one that um, Oxy Low Carbon Ventures and 1.5, we collaborate with them. Um, they have a direct air capture technology. And what that does is it's basically like an industrial sized air purifier, if you will. And it pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere using these really large industrial sized fans and it sticks that CO2 underground where it stays for thousands of years. I mean, it's in a geologic formation under there and it can't get out. Um, so, so that's a way for us to actually have confidence in the permanence of that sequestration. One of those plants at full scale has the capacity to remove as much CO2 from the atmosphere as 40 million trees. So when you think about impact and you think about significance of reduction, it really is material when you start looking at some of these technologies. Now, I will say it's early stage with them and it's a bit expensive, but all of that will come down as uh, you know economies of scale over time. The other um, benefit for United, which is really what we're looking at here, is carbon capture and utilization, which means capturing that CO2, whether it's on the industrial stack at a point source or it's through these industrial fans with direct air capture being able to capture that CO2 out of the atmosphere and repurposing it into low carbon or no carbon jet fuel of the future. So if you were to ask me today, how are you gonna be flying in 20 years? I, I will bet that we will have some portion of our flights 
powered by fuels that actually capture CO2 out of the atmosphere, turn that into a jet fuel, comes out our tailpipe and we capture it right back again. So it's this really nice closed loop cycle where we're not contributing anything more um, using that jet fuel. That's kind of exciting, but you'd have to do it in a light, you know, in a manner that didn't add weight to the aircraft, right? Well, we'd have to do it in a manner where the amount of CO2 that goes into the fuel is less than the amount that is combusted at the end. So it's a net negative. Right, exactly. So, so, so you know, the it's kind of a push-pull, isn't it? Or you're doing as much as you can, and you're finding partners who can kind of fill the niches that you need to get to where you want to be. But what about the engine manufacturers and the airframe manufacturers? What's their responsibility to the industry also to, to help you get over the finish line and, and to reduce emissions? It's, it can't be done by yourself. No, and, and it's not. Uh, you know, I give a ton of credit to our airframe and engine uh, colleagues because they, they too have been laser focused on figuring out how do, we, how do we optimize what we have? And then also, how do we think about net new? Um, you know, every, every airplane that we retire and replace is 15 to 20% more efficient um, in terms of emissions. And that's quite significant when you retire one out and replace it. Um, we're seeing, you know, Boeing is laser, laser focused on um, commercializing SAF. Airbus has been very clear about um, its ambition around hydrogen powered aircraft and looking at that as an alternative for the future. Um, Rolls-Royce and GE have been really um, uh, pushing into um, demonstrating the capability of flying on 100% SAF because today we're only allowed to use 50% sustainable fuels and 50% conventional. That's what the safety standard says. They're proving that that's arbitrary. We don't need that threshold anymore. We can fly 100%. And then there's new market entrants. Like we invested in a company called Zero Avia. And Zero Avia is really fun because what they do is they allow us to take some of our narrow body airplanes, which are flying in the sky for 30 years, and we can actually retrofit their engines. So we take off the conventional engine and we put in one that is a hydrogen electric hybrid, uh, so battery powered basically, engine. Uh, and uh, that flies in the sky and it's, it's low carbon. So we're able to keep our existing assets, our airframes, but actually just change out that engine. So we're, we're gonna start seeing a lot more of these innovations to come. Uh, and, and all of this is completely in partnership across the whole value chain. That is exciting. I like that Zero Avia yeah. is, um, they seem to be leading edge of, of that technology because I wanna, I wanna shift gears and talk about boom and, and EV tolls. And although maybe before we go there, just you started to talk about aircraft efficiency because you've got a big order book and, and how, I don't know if you, if you can answer this question, if not, I understand. And how you think about that in the face of higher interest rates, or, you know, I guess that's probably Jerry's purview. <laughs> I'm going to defer to our CFO on that one. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But, but so on EV tolls and boom, let's talk about those guys for a minute, because, um, you know, I don't understand the EV toll, um, the appeal of EV toll from, on, on the one hand, I get it. It's it's kind of a ground replacement company more than it is an air aircraft, right? It's not designed to take 150 people from LA to San Fran or from Chicago to New York. It's it's kind of taking four people out of a car and putting them in an, in a 
in, in basically a, an electric helicopter, for lack of a better descriptor, and, and get them to the airport. So, so how does that help you meet your goals? Well, here's what I'll say. Um, and, and I so appreciate this question because it's, it's really important to sort of think about the two dimensions of it. First, um, we will begin, we will continue to see innovations occurring in aviation. We should, we should celebrate that. We want that. Um, we need to start looking at opportunities to extend the customer experience into spaces we haven't been, such as supersonic or electric vertical takeoff and landing. Um, that is going to happen by virtue of the industry. It's an industry of innovators. My responsibility as United's commitment is to make sure that we're doing it sustainably, to make sure that when those innovations are coming to market and there's an opportunity for us to embrace maybe a different service to our customers, that we're doing it with our commitment to the climate and reducing our impact on climate change, that's at the forefront. So what's really exciting about our um, investment in Archer is that I believe it's a four-seater vertical takeoff and landing. So think downtown Hollywood to LAX, like it would, it would take you that far. And the intention is that it would cost roughly the same as an Uber X. So you bypass all the traffic, but you get there for about the same, um, the same cost and, and hit to your, your wallet. Um, but, but it's carbon free. I mean, it is a, a lithium ion battery that is charging that vertical takeoff and landing. That's really exciting to us. Um, you know, it reminds me when I was growing up, I read this book, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I don't know if you ever read that book, but yeah. So, I mean, that's the vision I get in my head for some reason. Now, supersonic is exciting because that's really about, you know, time. How much time can you save? What is what is the speed in which you can travel to these destinations? Um, yes, it does consume a, a fair amount of fuel, but it is designed, the aircraft itself and its engines are designed to really work on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. So the challenge isn't necessarily um, can supersonic fly on SAF, is the challenge is will we have enough SAF to put on the supersonic in time? And that's why we're working really hard with our friends and government and policymakers to, to make sure that we have a foundation of policy incentives that enable a lot more supply to come on quickly because we're, we're looking not just at our mainline and our regional um, aircraft, but we're also looking at um, supersonics of the future and whatever is next to come. Right. Well, I also imagine that from a supersonic perspective, if it takes three hours to go from San Francisco to Tokyo instead of 12 hours or 10 hours, that, that, that could potentially be a huge savings, especially if you can move the same number of people as you would move on one of your 787s or 777s. Yeah, and I don't know the seat configurations off the top of my head, um, and neither, neither do I know the economics, but I do know that we could, we could um, get more, more flights up using supersonic on those routes for sure. Okay, so what else should we know about your sustainability commitments and anything else we should know about what we're doing? Yeah, so I, um, so, so two comments and they're both about goals. I get a lot of questions about 2050 is so far away, can't you do something right now? And um, I appreciate the spirit of that question. I appreciate the desire to want to move fast. I hope that's come across crystal clear that we are there to, we have to, we have to accelerate this transition. Absolutely. Um, we have a goal that by 2035, 
we will reduce the carbon intensity of flying across all United flights 50% compared to 2019. So our last year of typical flying. What's important about that is that it allows us to recognize that we are rebounding from the pandemic and we're growing. So we're, we're, we are anticipating growth across United flights, but we're gonna do it responsibly by cutting the amount of carbon associated with each seat mile traveled by half. That goal aligns with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So when you think about science-based targets, when you think about being rooted in um, aligning to the global goals of net zero by 2050, that's where we are and that is absolutely our commitment. Um, the other point I'd like to make is that folks sometimes say, okay, so what's your 2023-2024 greenhouse gas emissions goals? And um, uh, you're not going to get one. And the reason I share that is because um, it's almost inappropriate to have that goal so near term because we need, we really do need the time for some of these solutions to mature and really scale. Um, you know, if you think about year over year progress, you then will encourage an airline like United to make different business decisions that allow us to reduce next year. And that's really where the um, solution of offsets and some of these other immediate term solutions come into play. Rather, we are taking our dollars and our time and our, um, our position in the marketplace to really invest in those solutions that are not going to mature for another three, four, five years. And so what uh, my expectation is that, you know, in the next two to three years, things will be somewhat status quo. That's completely appropriate because in the next five years or so, we're gonna see sort of this step decrease in emissions associated with some of these solutions really coming online in a material capacity. And that's what we want to see because those reductions are absolutely permanent and they will not be coming back into our operations. And so, you know, I, while I applaud, applaud quick, fast now, we want to see progress now, we want to see goals now, in industries like ours, where really the technology is nascent, we do need to make sure that we're focusing on the right benchmarks and the right kind of objectives to support the right kind of long-term transition. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's unusual because most other industries do have solutions they can kind of pick up and use today. Unfortunately, we're not one of them. And so, so we're building that momentum now um, and it's gonna take a little bit of time. And so, um, you know, that understanding of the nuance of this industry is really quite important when it comes to measuring progress. Uh, we, get, we get a lot of criticism about um, not moving fast enough in our industry. And I totally respect that and understand, but I also counsel back that at this point in time, we are at the right place supporting the right solutions. And in, in you know, a couple of years times, so we're gonna see some of those solutions really mature and we'll have a really um, impactful reduction in our emissions. It's hard maybe for people to understand you can't flip a switch, right? You can't flip a switch and go from here to there overnight. It's just not how it works. And, and to your point, the investments that are required are, are enormous in the, in the billions, if not trillions of dollars. And it needs to be funded somehow. And the money has to come from somewhere and government incentives, which you mentioned early on in our conversation, are important. Um, the push-pull we talked about, airlines pushing and pulling manufacturers to, to help out and think about it. And, the, and they're doing the same thing. You know, I think 
one of the things that's definitely occurred is this, and I don't know if you feel it too, but this whole discussion has moved forward even through the pandemic at a point in time where you, historically a goal like this might have fallen by the wayside given the urgency of the issues surrounding the pandemic that, you know, to your earlier point, going from, you know, 2.5-ish million passengers a day to under 100,000 in mm. April of 2020 for a couple of, for about a week before we started to see some growth. So yeah, I don't know how you think about that, but. No, I agree entirely. And, you know, the, the pandemic caused a, a degree of disruption that, I don't know without it, we would see the kind of innovations that we're seeing and the kind of values-based intentions that we're seeing. I mean, today United is launching this Good Leads the Way ad campaign. And this is really a campaign around who we are coming out of the pandemic. What does it mean to us to be part of United? And I'm thrilled that, you know, not just sustainability, but diversity and inclusion and opportunity and ambition and all of that is just who we are. And, uh, you know, just despite the, sort of the tragedy that was um, the, the COVID pandemic and, and how it ravaged the different communities, it actually was a bit of a silver lining for our industry because we were forced to hit stop. And we took that moment, thank goodness, to reflect on what does it mean to emerge from this as a better airline? And that's where we are today. And I couldn't be more excited about that. Well, let's talk about inclusion and diversity in the couple of minutes we have left, because the airline industry is very diverse in general. At the airport, you see a lot of gate agents, you see a lot of ticket agents, you see a lot of flight attendants even, who are, I would say, diverse. But once you get into middle management, and then you get into the C-suite, obviously there's not a lot of that. It's improving. The CEO of Cape Air is a female, which is exciting. But in some ways, we've taken a step back. I've been doing this for, I admit, to more than 35 and less than 40 years. And we had more female executives in the 1980s when I was starting out than we do now. And I know you guys have taken a lead in this area too, in this area as well, especially when Oscar was in charge. Um, and I think Scott's kept that momentum. But what, but what are you, what's management doing to bring juniors along to, to get them ready? And, and not only, you know, just all diversity, not only women, not only gender diversity, I guess I should say, but racial diversity as well. I could not be more proud of United for its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Just like sustainability, it's one of those core values that emerged from our downtime, I'll call it, with the, the uh, pandemic to, to really being um, a centralizing North Star focus of what does it mean to work for United. We are very committed to, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, this is one of those other examples, just like sustainability, where actions speak louder than words. Um, we have an executive council that is all of our executive team that focuses on diversity and our president, Brett Hart, is responsible um, for chairing that. We have um, a, a council called the We Stand United Council, which is comprised of all of leaders and officers across the, uh, the business that helps set goals and um, strategy for each of the different business units to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have a whole host of uh, business resource groups for employees 
that associate with different um, um, ethnicities or, um, uh, you know, dispositions uh, as they choose, whether it's multicultural or multigenerational, or if it's uh, veterans, for example, I mean, it's, it's all over the place to really um, help create a workforce environment that allows you to see yourself in others. Um, you know, we really pride ourselves on, on wanting to be, have the same diversity as you see out in the marketplace because it's, we, we fly everywhere and we're in every community and we wanna celebrate that and that should be core to who we are. What's most remarkable is um, just this year, we opened the doors to Aviate Academy, which is um, out in Arizona. It's a um, pilot training um, program that we actually have, we own at United. And we set the goal that 50%, at least 50% of those that come through the door to be trained as pilots will either be people of color or women. And this was really important because what we're seeing right now is not only um, you know, are there major barriers to entry to become a pilot in this industry because it, it costs a good amount of money. Um, but we're seeing potentially a, a labor shortage of pilots um, across the industry. And we really want to provide both opportunity for, for folks anywhere that have a passion for flying, but maybe not access to it, as well as um, an opportunity for them to have careers that carry their families. I mean, these are um, really good jobs and they can actually sustain communities wherever you fly. Um, that's really important to us. So we went a little bit beyond just saying it's important to us and we actually established a flight school. So um, it's really exciting. We had our first class go through more than 50% were women and people of color. We're expecting to train 5,000 pilots all the way through 2030 and we'll continue to go beyond that. Um, and that's just one of those examples, just like our investment in these alternative fuels to address climate issues, that we're, we are serious and we're rolling up our sleeves and we're actually putting um, solutions into play that can address the problems that we talk about. It's expensive to be a pilot, really. It's mm -hmm. expensive. And, and part of it, you know, now, this decade, we have quite a lot of pilots retiring. We had, had estimated the industry would need to hire mm -hmm. at least eight or 10,000 pilots this year. And I know your CEO commented recently that the industry actually has to hire closer to 13,000. And we only turn out about five. So it'll be interesting to see, don't you think, what Congress decides to do about this, given that there's a shortage of pilots. Airlines are having to cut the amount of flying they're doing. I think United itself at one point said they were short. They had 100 aircraft on the ground parked. And I assume those are mostly regional aircraft because they don't have enough pilots. That's, that's about 1,000 pilots short because it's on the smaller aircraft, it's about 10 pilots per plane. So airfares have only one thing to do, and that's go up. And, and if Congress doesn't like that as a plan, they have to really think about student loans. Is that an option? Do you think Congress would make student loans available? I don't know if you can answer this question, but could, could it make student loans available to people trying to get a, a pilot license? Well, I will say one of the areas that we looked at with our Aviate Academy is financing the cost of the program. And, um, and we, we do that. We offer that for sure, because we recognize that if you can't um, pay for your education to get through the door, you're not going to get through that door. Um, so I don't know. I think what's good, what's good about the, the, um, the recognition is that the dialogue is happening now in, in advance of a true catastrophe in terms of labor shortage. And I'm, I'm confident that there will be solutions. There'll probably be a 
a whole suite of solutions um, that that emerge um, from policymakers as well as um, the enterprise itself, like United, that are they're really looking to solve the problem. That's awesome. Well, Lauren, is there anything we should talk about that we didn't talk about? I feel like we did a lot of wide ranging conversation, but is there anything I missed? I mean, I don't think so. You were pretty thorough in your questions and where the conversation went. But I mean, truly, I cannot say enough how excited it is to me that you're interested, the industry you represent, our financial partners, the investor community cares. Because this is such an interesting evolution that we're going through. It's a, it's really important to have that point of view. What's fabulous to me is that we have the solutions. We just don't have the marketplace. So who better to help us build a marketplace, right, than our, our friends um, in the financial markets themselves. So I, uh, I, I look forward to a lot more collaboration. I look forward to a lot more of these discussions. Um, I, I'm really optimistic about the future of flying. I think it's going to be... Um, uh, clean and green and beautiful and we get to celebrate this planet and and not doubt that um, and that's really United's commitment here. That's awesome well I, I know I enjoy flying United for sure. <laughs> now, now if we can just get the government to stop pre-departure testing we'd see another leg up in demand so travel is fraught enough without adding that extra layer of uncertainty. I agree. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.